Good morning, everybody. Uh, just as was expressed earlier, it's very, very good to see everybody and just so encouraging to be together. Um, you know, it's so encouraging to get to sing those songs. Those are actually some of my favorite songs, and, and I know Brandon always does a careful job with, you know, trying to align songs with the text that the lesson is coming from. And um, Brandon, you didn't say if you did that, but it seems like you did. Um, the songs really fit the text very, very well and really make some of the points that are going to be made in the lesson. We've been looking at uh, parables on and off recently, and we've looked at the nature of parables and why parables were such an important part of Jesus' teaching. And that was in the middle of another uh, parable that Jesus taught of the seed and the sower. And so a couple weeks ago, we looked at that parable specifically, but that actually wasn't the first parable that Jesus had ever taught. Uh, In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, Matthew doesn't use the word parable here. Luke's gospel, in recounting these same uh, events, does use the word parable in uh, verse 16 uh, in Luke's account of those same um, parables. Luke will use the term that Jesus then taught them this parable and then proceeds to teach it. In Matthew's gospel, there's been a lot of parable-type things in the Sermon on the Mount already, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we'll be looking at those in our Bible class in Matthew that we're doing on Wednesdays. But in terms of parables that were isolated teaching and teaching in the form of story and illustration, these would be Jesus' first parables. Um, And just like what we saw last week with Uh, or two weeks ago, just as Jesus did not initially give any explanation for the parable of the seed and the sower, and as he did with many other parables, there's no explanation for these parables. And we talked about uh, in the last lesson, parables by nature, what they do is they illustrate very difficult concepts or things that are very profound, and they're just kind of hard to grasp and wrap our minds around. Parables illustrate and compare those things that are difficult to much more simple and common things. Things that are much more relatable and tangible to kind of give us a stepping stone of understanding these things that are much more difficult. And that's exactly what we're going to see here in Matthew chapter 9, 9 through 17. So I'm going to read uh, this section again, and then we're going to start just talking about each section and trying to draw out some lessons from each section of uh, this event of Jesus' life. So Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, I'll go ahead and read this again. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, Many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, 
Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. And again, just as we say, there's really no explanation there. It's just, here's the illustration, and it's left to the listener to hear and understand. So we're going to be dealing with how challenging each of these things were, and and start with these challenging associations. Um, Really, the events in verses 9 through 13, and the questions involved in this event, end up setting up all of the teaching we read here. In Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5, those are parallel accounts of these same events. And each gospel connects these events and the teaching involved all together. And so verses 9 through 13 ends up really becoming the triggering point, the first domino for this series of teaching again. So again, Jesus, Jesus here eating with tax collectors and sinners really sets everything up. So in verse 9, you notice that as Jesus was going along in his ministry, he finds Matthew, and uh, in Luke, he's called Levi, so Levi or Matthew. And he's sitting in the tax collector's booth, and Jesus says, follow me, and he got up and followed him. And in Luke's account of this, in verse 29, uh, it mentions that the house that Jesus was in here was actually Matthew's house, and that these tax collectors and sinners were actually people that Matthew himself invited. So these were like Matthew's personal guests. And obviously this implies that Matthew had some questionable associations himself. But really all of that sets up this this glorious event where Jesus initiates this interaction with Matthew, calls him to follow him, and he does. He forsakes everything and just gets up and follows him. And then there's this joyous celebration where Levi, Matthew, ends up inviting his friends and his associates, and they all come together in his house to hear and listen to Jesus and just dine with him. And in Mark's account, it mentions that these tax collectors and sinners were following him. So this wasn't just Jesus casually dining in just a friendly way. It it was. But these were people who were genuinely interested in Jesus and dedicating themselves to him, right? So notice in verse 11, I think something that's important to notice about this in verse 11 is the Pharisees don't initially ask their question to Jesus at all. They challenge his disciples. But who ends up responding in verse 12? You know, they ask their question, and this could have been, I imagine, a very difficult question to answer, right? Because Jesus is associating with people that the religious elite maybe would have deemed unclean or undesirable. You know, and investing in people like that is just going to end up ruining your reputation. But Jesus is willing to risk the loss of reputation. He's willing to risk looking bad to the religious elite to end up associating with people that they would not have been willing themselves to associate with. But Jesus, like a good shepherd, 
Jesus steps in and answers the question very simply and very profoundly. So Jesus' response, it is very simple, right? So verse 12, you have one sentence, and then in verse 13, you have a second sentence. So within two sentences, just some very simple statements, Jesus completely turns things around on the Pharisees, and it's not that Jesus and his disciples have any explaining that they need to do, but it's actually that the Pharisees fundamentally misunderstand some of the most important and some of the most basic concepts of who God is and what kind of people God is really seeking and what kind of people God is looking to build his relationship with. So in verse 11, the the question is obviously, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus responds by telling them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I think an important note here is in Luke chapter 13, if you'll turn there just very quickly, that in Luke chapter 13, it's made very clear that this idea of Jesus not coming to call the righteous, but sinners, is not that there were some people who actually really didn't need Jesus because they were already righteous, and so you know Jesus just didn't bother with them because they had no need, and other people did need him, so we went to them. It's really just a matter of who actually perceived the need that they had and could see Jesus through that need. Uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. This is when some people came and they reported about these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. It says, Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So really what Jesus is dealing with is a matter of perception, a matter of self-perception. This is why parables become so important, because parables don't just address the nature of our behavior as Jesus' more direct teaching often does. Parables address our perception, our perspective, the deeper issues that are hidden within our heart, how we see Jesus, how we see ourselves, how we see our need for Jesus, and whether or not we really understand the importance of Jesus' forgiveness and his role to be a mediator, an intercessor. And so parables are meant to slow us down and help us to think through things in a way that converts our perception and changes our heart. The Pharisees came to very quick, thoughtless conclusions about Jesus. And all of his teaching here is meant to slow them down and slow down their thought process and slow down their conclusions. And I think his parables, um, especially this initial one about him being a physician seeking the sick, and that he tells them to go and learn Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is profoundly encouraging. You know, I think oftentimes in lessons, again, it can be intimidating hearing things from God's word like last week. We talked about God calling us to make the most of our time and redeem the time. You know, and there's a sense of conviction that can be hard to deal with where that teaching and those commands, they don't end up bearing any fruit unless we very painfully hold the teaching and ask ourselves uncomfortable questions so that we can then learn how to apply these things on a daily basis. And so 
God's word can end up becoming intimidating because of the hard applications we're called to make, and we can end up losing sight of the encouragement that we should be gaining from knowing Jesus and just his teachings, his teachings method of healing and encouraging our hearts. And so just imagine, the Pharisees are people who saw no need for Jesus. They saw no need to go to the tax collectors and sinners. But how about the people Jesus was dining with? How are they affected by his words here? Jesus' words here are encouraging when we realize that we are the people who need the physician. That we need mercy and compassion and we need God to exercise faithful love and patience with us in his association with us. When we realize how broken we are, how needy we are, how much we test God's patience in our relationship with him, it becomes that much more encouraging when we see Jesus reassuring us that he came for people just like us. If Jesus was willing to dine with people who are tax collectors and sinners and to spend time with them and to defend his time with them to the Pharisees, then he's willing also to be patient with us as we struggle with making applications of his instructions. He's willing to, to stay with us and abide with us when we're weak, when we're broken, when our life has so many things that still need to be fixed, things that need to be matured, things that need to be changed. These were people who were fundamentally completely broken apart. In verse 10, when it says tax collectors and sinners, these were not just people who were kind of religious, kind of not. Tax collectors were, throughout the Gospels, referred to people who were viewed completely contemptibly because they worked for the Roman government for one, which in the Jewish culture would have been looked at in a very negative way. But then for two, besides this, the way that they earned their wages and their profit was by extortion, meaning that they would get you to pay more than you actually owed so that they could pocket the surplus and then earn a fair wage or, you know, not fair, but earn a wage, earn a profit. And so tax collectors, even in Jesus' teaching, are referred to as people who are morally bankrupt, right? So Levi, Matthew, was a tax collector, and other tax collectors were now here in the house with Jesus. And then you have sinners. And just for it to say sinners, these are not people, again, that you may see at the temple at all. These are the throwaways of the Jewish society, people that the Pharisees would have seen as completely irreligious, people who are not dedicated at all. And yet Jesus was willing to invest in them and again, even defend very boldly his association with them. And so when we struggle the most with conviction or feeling like we just don't know how to make the right applications of God's word or can see that the applications we're making are weak or we're struggling with sin in our lives and just struggling to understand how to have the wisdom to escape sinful habits, these kinds of words should be very, very reassuring to us. And I think we need to learn to have more admiration for Jesus' decisions like this. Look back at verse 8. How did the crowds respond when they saw a lame man healed by Jesus' words? They were awestruck and glorified God. What the Pharisees did is they viewed Jesus as their competition. 
So everything Jesus did just ended up infuriating them or agitating them. They were constantly comparing themselves with what Jesus was doing. And I think if we're not careful, we can make a similar mistake where we too quickly look for the immediate application of, well, Jesus did this, what do I need to do to be exactly like that? And there are times where we definitely do need to do that. But I think if we put ourselves in the position of these tax collectors and sinners, sometimes we just have to admire and be in awe of the things that Jesus did. And imitation naturally flows from admiration and awe. There are many times when I was a young child, my dad did all sorts of things that I did not have the capability to do, the knowledge to do, or the wisdom to do. And I admired the fact that he did those things. And it made me want to do things that could imitate those behaviors or those attitudes, even when I couldn't do it very well, right? And we just need to appreciate the sacrifice that Jesus was making in doing these things. Think about a time where maybe you tried to connect with someone or even were put into a situation with someone you literally had nothing in common with. Like, think about somebody who maybe their personality is just, like, incredibly different from yours. Maybe their background or their interests. Just, there's no base of commonality, right? So you're trying to find some way to connect and you just, you just can't find it. And maybe there's just this awkward silence and you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs. How different is God than a tax collector or a sinner? And I think that's what the Pharisees really struggled with. If, if we're going to be holy, then we need to have nothing to do with these people who have nothing in common with the holiness of God, right? So just think about this. What kind of sacrifice would it take for Jesus to dine with people with whom he would seem to have nothing in common? But what did they have in common? They had a mutual interest in God's kingdom. That needs to be our basis of relating with one another. If we can relate with one another more on God's kingdom and our interest in the kingdom, it's amazing what God can do to unify a very diverse people, just like we've been studying together. I want you to think about this as well. It's easy to teach lessons and then step back and withdraw into a bubble. And I think that happens very, very often. I remember... uh, Jason um, told me one time how rare it is to see somebody who actually is like a teacher and a real person, I think is what you said. (laughs) And that's what Jesus was. Jesus wouldn't just teach people things and then step away and then isolate himself from them and then just return to teach some grand thing and step away again. Jesus was the servant of his teaching. Jesus helped people to see that God was patient with them that God was working with them, and that he desired mercy and compassion, not sacrifice, right? It's much harder to serve the application of teaching than it is to just say things and step away. And that's just not the kind of teacher Jesus was. Jesus would not just say things and step away. He would serve the application to the listener. So verse 14 and 15. Let's look at the next parable here. So the disciples of John came to him then asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
So the other Gospels kind of, again, give different shades of light on this interaction. Um, In another Gospel, it mentions that the Pharisees asked this question again. And so it seems like the disciples of John and the Pharisees really both had this question, and we see them both included in the question here in Matthew. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Um, It might be helpful just to clarify what fasting is. Fasting is generally a denial of food due to grief, heavy concern, some anticipation of something, or just a desire to be more focused on something specific. Uh, I think in verse 15, Jesus' response points to the fact that this more is a fasting of grief, because he says the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. So that's, I think, just helpful, just understanding what fasting is. It's a denial of food. It would be something that would make, make you seem just much more devoted, reverent, solemn, more dedicated. Um, but really, in chapter 11, I think Jesus ends up drawing out that the issue is not really fasting itself. It's more people's expectations that's placed on Jesus and letting those expectations be broken and redefined by Jesus and allowing him to break our expectations by his behavior and his interactions and his teaching. Uh, Look at chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. Um, This is a longer discourse that Jesus gives related to John the Baptist and how so many of the Jewish people were actually impossible to please. There's just no way of reaching them or getting them to see the truth of things. So verse 16, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So again, is the issue really just the practice of fasting? It's not really the issue. The issue is whether or not somebody is really willing to receive Jesus as he is, and again, allow their expectations to be fundamentally broken. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 9, John the Baptist has finished his course of preaching. When we get to Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has been busy performing miracles, healing people physically, casting out demons. He's taught the Sermon on the Mount, among other things. And so Jesus' miracles, his authority, his teaching, are all very well known by this point. And then again, we alluded to verse 8. Jesus, in front of the people who may have been questioning him in the section we're looking at, saw Jesus prove that by his word he can heal a paralyzed man and thus proving that he has authority to forgive sins, an authority only God alone possesses. And yet still, these questions arise as if nothing is good enough to fundamentally help them see that you just have to let Jesus fully redefine every expectation of what you think the Messiah should be and just trust that this is it. He is doing what is right and what is pleasing to God. And so Jesus' parable ends up responding to that deeper issue. 
And really, understanding the parable depends on the willingness to see Jesus more clearly for who he is. So in verse 15, I think we can make some very simple, clear connections in the parable. Jesus would obviously be the bridegroom. He would be the man at his wedding, ready to uh, meet his bride. His disciples would be the intendants of the bridegroom. And I think we can think about that like groomsmen at a wedding, uh, the people who stand up front with the groom, who stand by his side, and then you have the maids of honor on the other side standing with the bride. So he's saying that the time when the bridegroom is with them is a time of joy and celebration. Um, and you think about the groomsmen sharing the joy, uh, sharing the joy of the bridegroom. They tend to be the closest friends of the bridegroom and can appreciate that joy the most. Um, I've been able to be a groomsman at a, at a couple of weddings. And when it's somebody that you're very familiar with, there is nothing but joy at a wedding ceremony. Just the anticipation of it, the day finally arriving, all of the stress and the buildup is completely gone. And all that's left is the overwhelming joy of that day and getting to participate in the joy of this person who's finally able to take their bride. And remember Matthew's response to following Jesus just a little bit earlier, the event that triggered these questions. How did Matthew respond when Jesus said, follow me? It was overwhelming joy. And so for the disciples of Jesus, getting to be with Jesus himself was the complete fulfillment of everything that God had ever been building up to. Jesus was the fulfillment of their every expectation. He was the fulfillment of their culture and the basis of their culture, the history of the culture, the future of their culture. And so to the disciples of Jesus, how they saw Jesus, being with him was something that brought them overwhelming joy. And it wouldn't be until he would be taken away from them that they would again experience the kind of mourning that would result in something like fasting again. And so I think something that we need to appreciate, being this close to Jesus is an indescribable and unfathomable blessing, but it can very easily be overlooked. The Pharisees and the disciples of John were two groups of people who were very religiously dedicated. If somebody was a disciple of John, then that meant that they accepted John's preaching, that they had repented. They'd been baptized by John. And the Pharisees were obviously people who took serving the law and the ordinance of the law. They took that very seriously. So here are groups of people who are incredibly dedicated, and yet they're overlooking something so basic in the way that they're responding to Jesus and not associating with this great joy and seeing that joy. I think this can come in the form of, for instance, let's say somebody grows up with Christian parents. They grow up going to church. They grow up being exposed to the message of the gospel. And it can be so easy to overlook and take for granted the joy of having Jesus thrown at our feet. And that's just like the Pharisees. Jesus was thrown at their feet. The kingdom was opened wide to them. But because of the condition of their hearts, they just couldn't see it and they overlooked it. 
Jesus also addressed that in chapter 11 as well. If you'll turn back there really quick in verse 12. This is something that Jesus says that's probably one of the more unusual things in this section. Um, And I think it's really amazing to work it out and really think it through like other parables. So chapter 11, verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. So even though it sounds like Jesus is saying something bad, I think he's actually saying something very good. Imagine that there's something very expensive that is being offered at a very high price and only a few people can actually afford it. And others who can't afford it are looking at this like, man, I just wish I had the opportunity or the resources to get this. Well, because maybe the people who can afford it aren't buying and they're showing no interest, as soon as it's offered to that group who desired it and felt like they couldn't obtain it, they just take it immediately. They say, why wanted that? And so they're given this thing that they had wanted so desperately and they, they seize it and they grab hold of it because what they do then is they show its value in just how diligent they are to take hold of it. And shame on the Pharisees that they knew so much about God and while tax collectors and sinners were forcing their way into the kingdom. They were doing everything they could to get to Jesus and to be with him. All they could do was stand back with a critical eye and find reasons to accuse Jesus and strive to ruin his reputation by fulfilling God's will. And so we have to realize again, through these parables, Jesus equips us to properly value him and his kingdom and what he's offering. So verse 16 and 17, let's finish with these... uh, Unusual two parables. But no one puts a patch of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Can you imagine how humiliating it would be that as a scribe or as a Pharisee, you would be an expert in matters of the law. You would be very familiar with different rabbis who give their explanations of difficult passages in the law of Moses. You would have all of those things memorized and ready to teach. And here Jesus is talking about garments and wineskins, and you would be lost and confounded. (laughs) Again, he's teaching things that are so basic, but they're so profound, despite their simplicity. And just like so many parables, it's the circumstances, it's the nature of Jesus and how people responded to Jesus that illuminate meaning into these otherwise simple but difficult things. So let's think through these things just a little bit. Both of these parables are about materials that can be damaged because of something else that's interacting with it. So you have the cloth and then the other piece that's put on to patch a tear. You have wine skin and how it's affected by the wine that's placed in it. So in verse 16, a patch of unshrunk cloth would be like a new piece of cloth. Um, I was talking to Eva about this the other day that I don't really worry anymore about clothes shrinking in the wash after the first wash, but I remember when I was a kid, I would want something and I'd try it on when I was very young. And my mom would remind me like, hey, it's going to shrink in the wash. So we would have to get a size larger 
And then when it would get washed, it would shrink down and it would fit properly, right? So you kind of planned on the fact that things would shrink. And that's really the idea is if you have an old garment that's already been thoroughly washed, it's shrunk down, but it has a large tear in it. If you put a new piece of cloth on that tear and sew it on tightly, well, when you then wash it again, that new piece of cloth is going to shrink down. It's going to pull against the old garment and it's going to cause an even greater tear as a result. And similarly, the next teaching is new wine being put into old wineskins and then splitting it open and spilling the wine. Um, So this is something that is a little more difficult because I'm not familiar with these things. And so um, looking things up and understanding things better by looking into history is very helpful for me. But wineskins would have been like animal leather. And when wine was put into animal skins, it would begin to ferment and it would release gases. And what this would do is it would stretch the leather out. So over time, obviously leather can't just stretch forever. And so at some point, the leather would stretch so much that if it stretched any more, it would begin to rip and it would spill out its contents and be useless. So Jesus, again, using a very simple illustration, that new wine then is put into a fresh wineskin that when placed inside... The fermentation doesn't ruin it, but expands it appropriately. And so new wine is put into new wineskins. And you think, okay, well, so what? So let's finish the lesson just thinking about some lessons from these two parables. I think the first thing to understand is exposure to Jesus will be damaging if we're not listening with the right intentions and motives. You know, we sang the song, Holy, Holy, Holy. That was the first song that we sang this morning. And because God is holy, what we should expect is that God is so different from us that what he's going to teach is going to be challenging. It may be confusing, it may be difficult to apply, but we need to give God the credit of understanding that his teaching is not meant to just conform to my preferences or fit into my life according to my will, right? And so we just have to be careful with our intentions and motives. Jesus' teaching is very challenging. And he will say things that will radically challenge my willingness to forsake my life to gain the kingdom of God. And what we can easily end up doing, even without realizing it sometimes, I think, is things that Jesus says that we just don't like, things that we just don't want to apply, or things that require a sacrifice that I'm just not willing to make, or demand giving up something that I really just want to keep for myself, we can end up then questioning that teaching and making it more complicated than it really is. Oftentimes with things Jesus instructs, he is crystal clear about things. His words are clear. The command is clear. But we can easily end up like the Pharisees, making it seem a lot more confusing and complicated than it really is, when it's like, just take it at face value. And I had a study with someone just recently where he was talking about um, uh, women's roles in the Bible. Um, And we ended up, having a conversation about what the Bible says about the distinction between men and women's roles and leadership and all that. And he kept telling me, you've got to dig deeper. You've got to dig deeper. And I was like, well, what does that 
What does that even mean? And when it was brought up that that just kind of seems like a dangerous way of just kind of getting to pick and choose what you like from the Bible and what you don't like and just dismiss the things you don't like, what he said is, we're not going to get anywhere because you take the Bible at face value and I don't. And that's, that's what he said and that's where the study ended. And I think that really is an illustration of the issue in the world. Is Again, it's, it's not that God is not clear. It's really, are we willing to just take what Jesus and the apostles say at face value? If they say this, this, and this, do we really allow it to be that simple? And there are times that the disciples would even struggle with hard things that Jesus would say, and he wouldn't apologize or give them some new loophole. He would say things like, well, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or not everyone can accept this, but only those to whom it, was, it is granted. Which really just simply means that there's some people where they just don't want to hear this. And there's others where they're wide open. And they're like these fresh wineskins. So Jesus' teaching is not like a little piece of cloth just to patch us up. And that's where it can be damaging. We have to understand that Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He didn't come to make Pharisees better Pharisees or make a Jew a better Jew. He came to encourage people that they all need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. And if that's not what they were willing to do, then things were going to be complicated. And it was going to be difficult, a lot more difficult than it would need to be. And Jesus was willing to be patient with those people like Nicodemus, who when Jesus talked about being born again, just really didn't understand it. Nicodemus did end up becoming a disciple. But the reality is, things were hard for Nicodemus because he didn't just take Jesus' words at face value. And so here's what we need to understand. Think about the wine as something that is like Jesus' teaching. That it's meant to be put inside of a vessel where it can stay and ferment and it needs to expand it out. But if it's old and if it's not new, it's just going to end up ripping and it's going to end up spilling out. Look at Ezekiel chapter 6 or 36. Uh, I didn't put the second number after the next two, but I think that's 24 through 26 of Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, 24 through 27, actually. 24 through 27. So this is in the midst of New Covenant prophecies and something you've heard me reference a few times, I think recently. But here God says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And so you'll see on the board, we don't just need a new way of living. You know, there's people in the world, they can see that alcoholism is bad and so they stop drinking alcohol. People in the world can muster self-control or maybe they have kids and they think like, wow, I really need to for my kids' sake, stop using profanity, and they can, they can stop using profanity. People in pride, in the world without God, can muster the willpower to make changes in their lives. But it's still not the change at all, not even close, that Jesus came to bring. 
Just like the patch of cloth on a garment, Jesus didn't just come to modify a couple of behaviors and make us better moral people. That is accomplished if we submit to the gospel. But the kind of surgery we need is not just a band-aid on a wound or a few stitches. We need a new heart to be put in us, a new spirit to be given to us. The change that needs to be made is radical and nothing else will do. The great physician came to heal us from the inside into the depths of our being and recreate us into the image of God. And if that's not what we're seeking, if that's not appealing to us, then exposure to Jesus will just end up being damaging. And we're not going to be willing to endure the pain of our hearts being expanded and teaching will just exposure upon exposure be spilled out and lost and there will be no meaningful change that will come from it. God's word being kept in a heart of good soil. It will be painful. It will be difficult to make those applications. But if we really understand who Jesus is and what he's accomplishing through those things, it becomes something we embrace. It becomes something that causes us to stand in awe. It emptiness, it empties us of pride and selfishness and it increases our capacity to obey by faith and do those things that will be left undone to neglect unless we listen with a right heart and with right motives. And so that's the parables here in Matthew chapter 9, and I commend them to you. If there's anything that, um, in the hearing of God's word, or even beyond just this lesson, if there's anything that you see in your life needs to be confessed before the church, or if there's anything that needs to be made right, if there's any encouragement we can grant you in relation to the kingdom and these things, we've designated this time after the lesson to bring those things forward as we stand and sing the invitation song.